Isaiah 63. I want to cover just a few more in the Old Testament here about honoring our Father. Uh, As I think we have become aware, God did approach mankind from Adam on down as Lord, as God, as Jehovah, as the Almighty. And only with David, essentially, did he begin to approach David as Father. And then we have accounts through a few of the prophecies where God refers to himself as a father. But those prophecies, when written, were already past, essentially, the captivities of Israel that had occurred before and were therefore forward-looking prophecies to today with some minor fulfillments in between here and there, but primarily all of it is going to be redone again here at the end time. So these references that we find through the prophecies, and there aren't very many of them really, are for today when God has introduced himself as Father, which we will get to hopefully here in a little while. But I want to pick up a few more in Isaiah and Ezekiel because they are encouraging to us in terms of how our Father in heaven approaches the relationship. Isaiah 63, let's begin down in about verse 15. Here is a call from Isaiah to God, and we can call upon him. He says not to give him any rest until these things happen. We're supposed to cry out as Israel did in Egypt. We're not to to leave him alone. We're to bother him, if you will. And Christ used that analogy himself in the story of the unjust judge that the widow kept going to over and over and over again and finally said, okay, okay, I'll do it. And it appears that God, using that analogy of Christ as well as uh, what he has done in the past and what he says here in Isaiah about not giving him any rest until he does it, it puts a burden upon us to implore him, to beseech him, to talk to him, to call on him, to let our needs, our suffering, and the suffering of the world around us be known, that not only do we need Christ and our Father in heaven, but the world does as well. Uh, We think we have it hard and bad sometimes, but already there are people dying of famine and pestilence and wars around the world, and it is only going to increase. So we need to be crying out. And even as the example prayer that Christ gave for us, Thy kingdom come, should be continually upon our lips to pray to him to send that kingdom. He said he would cut some of it short, didn't he? He didn't say how short. He just said, you pray that I do it soon. So that is a commission he has given us. Just as Isaiah here approaches it somewhat in that same fashion. He says in verse 15, look down from heaven. He wants God's attention. Look down, see what is here, what is needed. Now God knows and nothing escapes his attention, but we are to call his attention. Behold from your habitation, or from the habitation of your holiness and of your glory. Where is your zeal and your strength? 
It is not rebellious or a wrong attitude to ask God to show his strength and his zeal for us, because he himself has told us that he withdrew it because of our lackadaisical attitudes. So we need to be calling upon him and not being apathetic and lethargic anymore, but be actively seeking him so that he will then respond. Now that is true of human relationships in many respects. It says if you want friends, show yourself friendly. Be aggressive, be outgoing, be friendly. And people will then respond to that. That's the way relationships are built. If you don't ever speak to anybody, they might wonder, or you might wonder if they care. But if you speak to them, they'll tend to speak to you. We are attracted and drawn to those who make the effort, are we not? So God is going to be attracted to those who make the effort. He says he will stir them to come to do his work. Which ones? He makes it very clear that those who seek him are the ones that he will stir. If they reach out to him, and that is the posture he is in, I am not going to reach out to you. I have turned my face from you. I can't abide you in the condition you're in. So you come to me. Does the mountain come to Muhammad or does Muhammad come to the mountain? We must go to God. And he has taken the position, I will not turn my face back into you until I hear your cries, I hear your plea, I hear your prayers, I feel your hearts changing and turning, and then I will turn my face forgive your sins and give you of my blessings and the joy that you desire. So this thing is in large part in our court. Yes, we cry out to God and say, please send your blessings. Please fulfill these promises. And we look as if it is upon him to do it, without first doing what he has laid upon us. Now, he is ready and willing to bless, to give to us. But he has required that we first give ourselves to him. That is the contingency that is upon us today. If we do, he will then respond. No, I will not say if we do. I'm saying then when we do. He says, when trouble comes, then you will seek me early. So it is not too long that we have to go through all that we're going through before God begins to turn it around. But he will continue to put pressure on us and difficulty, trial and tribulation and deprivation until... Our heart is where it ought to be. When that occurs, he then says he will turn it. Now that is why Isaiah could call out the way that he did. And why we need to do the same. Look down. Where is your zeal and your strength? 
the sounding of your insides, your emotions, and of your mercies toward me. Are they restrained? Yes, they are. Under the current conditions, those mercies are restrained. Doubtless, you are our Father. Now, there's no doubt you're our Father, but where are your mercies? Where are your blessings? Are they restrained? Yes. We know you're our Father, and through Abraham, uh, be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. Now, in the end time here, we recognize he is our Father, though Abraham is dead, and Israel as a whole does not recognize God. We, his church, and I'm not speaking of this group, I'm speaking of the broad spectrum of those who are called out at this time. They're in many places doing different things at the moment. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer. Your name is from everlasting. So we can cry out that, yes, you are our Father, but we're not receiving what we want to receive. O Eternal, why have you made us to err from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servants' sake the tribes of your inheritance. The people of your holiness have possessed it but a little while. The end-time church has only existed for less than a century in the end time here, just as the early New Testament church did. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. That which had been built up as a church of God has been being demolished. Gone, for the most part. We are yours. Hey, you know, please listen. We belong to you, should be our plea and our cry. You called us out. Look at our plight. You never bore rule over them. They were not called by your name. People can call out to Christ, call him Jesus. They can cry out to the Father, but they don't know who the Father is. Christ told the Pharisees, who were supposedly the most righteous people in his day, You're of your father the devil. Now, they didn't openly worship the devil. They didn't even know they worshiped the devil. Just as most Christians, so-called, do not today. I recently had to write a letter to the people over in Kenya uh, because they were concerned about these prophecies about the end of, or the rapture May 21st and the end of the world in October. And I told them it's not going to happen. And I explained that that man is not a Christian. He does not know God. God gives his spirit to them that obey. And they do not obey his commandments. They don't keep his Sabbath, his holy days. They don't do anything, basically, that the Bible says we need to do. And therefore, he does not hear their prayers, or that man's prayers. And he has no relationship with God whatsoever. That's why he comes up with these crazy things that have nothing to do with all the things God has, says has to happen before Christ returns. And there are years worth of them here in this book that have to occur before he can possibly return. 
But the man has no comprehension of that. Oh, it settled them a great deal. I got back a very nice uh, email. They were pleased to have the understanding because they said people, he knew of at least two people in Kenya, not of that group, who had committed suicide when it didn't happen. That's how deeply emotional people beget about some of these false teachings and false prophets. They come and bring not this word, have nothing to do with them, it says. And they don't bring this word. But this word does say that if we obey him, he is our father here at the end time. And we need to beseech him as we would a father for those things that we need. So, Isaiah is talking about the circumstances we are in here. Let's look at chapter 64 briefly. Uh, verse 8. <clears throat> but now, O Eternal, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are potter. And we all are the works of your hand. So the analogy here is of a father, but also of a potter who is shaping clay. And we've all heard the stories, I'm sure, in a sermonettes here about how clay has to be the exact right consistency to be properly formed. If it's got too much water in it, it falls limply and won't keep its shape. If it's too dry, it cracks and can't be molded properly. So we have to have just the right consistency. God requires humility, meekness. He hates pride and vanity and ego. We have to have the right attitude as a little child, as Christ put it, so that we can be molded. But we tend to be stiff-necked, hard-headed, to want our own way and to be self-centered. And when we're that way, we don't want to give in to the shaping of his hands. We want to do it our way, don't we? And as a result, we will not be molded the way he wants. And that has always been the history of mankind and of Israel, sad to say. But with his spirit, that should change. Be not angry, very sore, O eternal, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech you, we are all your people. So, there's another word to use in terms of talking to God. Beseech Him. That means a strong plea, a strong prayer, a strong question. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and our beautiful house, where our fathers praise you, is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you refrain yourself for these things, O Eternal? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very sore? How hard does this have to get? How long does it have to last? We need to talk to him regularly about this, daily, that his kingdom come and relief be had. On both a spiritual and a physical level, the house of God, the temple of God, has been laid waste. The church has been laid waste. And Jerusalem itself physically has been desolate for many generations, as have the cities of Judah, as other scriptures show us. So it's both on a physical and a spiritual level. Let's go to Jeremiah 3. 
There I want to pick this one up in verse 1. They say, If a man put away his wife, and she go from him, and become another man's, shall he return to her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? That isn't the right way to go about things, he's saying. But you have played the harlot with many lovers. Yet return again to me, says the Eternal. We have chased off in many, many different directions, disobeying God. He uses sexual pollution here as an example of that, but it takes many forms and shapes and fashions. There are many ways we can adulterate the way of God. But he says, in spite of all this, return to me. Lift up your eyes to the high places and see where you have not been laid with. In the ways have you sat for them as the Arabian in the wilderness, and you have polluted the land with your whoredoms and with your wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain. In Joel, we read that there he is going to give us the former and the latter rain in the first month. But it has been withheld. To this point, and you have had a whore's forehead, you refuse to be ashamed. This land is besotten with sin, or besodden with it, and we're not ashamed of it. We have gay pride in our land. We have redneck pride in our land. We have pride of beauty and vanity and ego and materiality in our land. On and on and on we could go with that. Will he reserve his anger forever? Oh, wait a minute, verse 4. Will you not from this time cry to me, My Father, you are the guide of my youth. Are we not under these conditions where we have sinned greatly as a nation, as a church, to be turning to God as our Father? And that how he was there to guide us through youth. I, for one, can look back at my life. And I, my family was called when I was just a very young child, under age 10. He was there to be my guide from youth. And let's not talk about me any more than that. I've sinned against God through my life, even though I started in age seven, eight, nine, learning his way. Sometimes I look at myself and think, boy, have I made any progress yet? I'm old enough, there should have been some, and yet it seems we still are filled with our self, with our will, our way, our, way, our thinking, whatever it might be that holds us back, stiff-necked, proud, vain. We all have it. And we cling to it. Anyway, we cry out to him as Father. Will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you could. And then he goes on and talks about how evil Israel has been. And he's talking about Israel, a church, in the end time here in this prophecy. But he does say he will turn it. We will turn to him. Let's continue that thought a little bit in Jeremiah 31. 
Uh, pick it up in verse 5. Uh, you shall plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. For there shall be a day that the watchmen upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise you, let us go up to Zion, to the Eternal, our God. There will come a time when the church is going to hear that message. For thus says the Eternal, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Publish you, praise you, and say, O Eternal, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Now we can read these scriptures. We know it's coming. We can preach them to the top of our voice today, and there is very, very little response. But there'll come a day when the shout is made and people will begin to listen. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coasts of the earth, and with them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and her that travails with child together. A great company shall return here, or to Zion is where the call is to come to. They shall come with weeping and with supplications. Will I lead them? I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way. The true words of God, the rivers of water. Christ is the living water. Wherein they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. He says, I'm not going to be angry forever. Even as a father pities his children, I'm going to turn. And I'm going to bless and draw them together. Hear the word of the eternal, O you nations, and declare it in the coasts afar off. And say, he that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. Now, true sheep have a very strong flock instinct. They are not loners. They want to be with the rest of the flock. I've handled sheep enough now to know that you better not be, get between a sheep and the rest of the flock. Marla got knocked flat on her back recently when she was between a sheep and the flock. Just flat ran over her to get with the flock. Now, we need to be that way as the flock of God, that we cannot be separated from each other, that we have a strong flock instinct. He says... Uh, what was the scripture I was going to quote there? And then it, it came in and went, just like that. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. So much the more as we see the day draw near there in Hebrews. Oh, we need each other. We need to be a strong flock with a bond among ourselves and not be loners going off on our own. And he will take care of his flock and gather it, put it together. So those are the promises he gives if we will just simply do our part and turn to him. We have much of great wonder to look forward to. Ezekiel 18, <clears throat> verse 1, The word of the Eternal came to me again, saying, so this is directly from God to Ezekiel to write down for you and me, What do you mean that you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel? What does this mean? And here's the saying. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now we've, I'm sure, eaten a sour grape or a piece of sour 
something that wasn't ripe yet. And you know that feeling you get in your teeth, it isn't pleasant at all. I'm getting it just talking about it a little bit, just the, the thought. As I live, says the eternal God, you shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sins, it shall die. Now this introduces a section where he discusses that we will not be held accountable as a result of the sins of our fathers. Now, you know, in the past, it said the iniquity of the father will be passed down to the third and fourth generation of the children that follow. The sin of the father often follows the children because it has breached the family relationship. It has caused loss of family uh, lands, holdings, homes. Sometimes a foolish father can betray his family, and through sin, the family becomes dysfunctional, and it affects the children and grandchildren, down three and four generations. But God says here in this section that no more will the children have their teeth set on edge because of the fathers, but that each of us will answer for ourselves. We will all be judged by God our Father. You don't have to worry about what your father did, nor does your child have to worry about what you did. God will judge each individually. He says, all the souls are mine. I'm not going to go through and, and read this whole section. But the upshot of it is that if we repent of our sins, God will forgive us individually, and we will only have to answer for ourselves. If we turn to sin, will we judge harshly? If we turn from sin to righteousness, our iniquity will be forgotten. Now, that's the way of a father. And we need to understand our Father in heaven from that standpoint. That he is willing to blot out and forget and remove them as far as the east is from the west. So that the iniquity will never again, I think it says here in this chapter even, maybe another place, will never again be mentioned to us. Wouldn't that be neat? That anything that you did wrong in this life, ever, would ever be mentioned again. What a father that is. You know, we as humans perhaps don't like it when our parents might remind us of what we did then and then and then and then. We don't like to hear that over and over. Here we go again. Got to hear all my faults and all my problems and all the things I've done wrong. You know, we might do something wrong and then it just opens a box of things that we're reminded of. And that's hurtful to us. We don't like to hear it. Wouldn't it be nice to leave the past behind and not ever have to worry about it again? Well, God says He's willing to do that for us. He's that kind of Father. That's the kind of Father I want to look to. Because if He's going to remind me of my sins forevermore, I'm in deep trouble. Don't want to hear that throughout eternity. But He's not going to do it. He says He'll forget it, remove it, and never be mentioned again. Wow! There is forgiveness. There is forgettery. Now let's go... As an ending, one 
uh, in the Old Testament to Malachi because it definitely is an end-time prophecy culminating in the return of Christ. And he writes to Israel, I have loved you, says the Eternal, yet you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Eternal, yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now Esau would not acknowledge his bad attitude. He would not change it. He would not overcome it. And God hated that in him. Now Jacob sinned, stole the birthright in a confederacy or conspiracy with his mother. And yet his attitude turned right and God loved Jacob. That's a, it, it brings out what Ezekiel was saying that we just read in chapter 18. That it doesn't matter where you start, it's where you end up that matters. You had honest desire to obey God, and then you turned, then you'll suffer for what you became. If you had a wrong attitude, and you change and do it right, then God will forgive that. We'll get to the story of the prodigal son. Fits very well here. But I won't go there yet. Anyway, he goes on down and says, A son, in verse 6, honors his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, says the Eternal of hosts to you, O priests that despise my name? Why would a priest despise his name? If he's a priest of God or a minister of God. Well, we despise his name when we don't obey his laws and follow his way of life. That's how we despise him. That's how a child despises a physical father, is by not following the house rules, lands him in trouble. We didn't follow God's house rules in this book, and we wound up in trouble. Now we have to change that. Now, this, this particular verse is what spurred this whole series of 31 or 2 sermons now that we've had. I thought to myself this morning, is this getting too long? Is this too much? And yet there's no more important subject in the world than our relationship with our Father in Heaven. And in fact, that's what the last uh, verse of the whole book of Malachi summarizes. The, the heart of the fathers has to be turned to the children, the heart of the children to their fathers lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So the relationship we have with our Father in heaven is the most important thing to be considered on this earth at this time. His face is turned from us because of our stubbornness, stiff-necked, half-hearted approach to God. And it is only going to turn back where his heart is fully with us, when our heart is fully with him. That is his complaint at the beginning of Malachi, about the end-time church. And he summarizes it by saying, this has to be fixed. Otherwise, the curse, that is, total destruction, will come upon the earth. 
And Christ even echoed that by saying, except for the elect's sake, all flesh would die. None would be saved alive. So for those few who will turn to God wholeheartedly, God will save human life. Otherwise, he says, I will not do it. And that's what he's saying here at the end of Malachi as well. So even though this might not be new knowledge and titillating and exciting in terms of, of what excites us, <clears throat> it's very bedrock to what is going on in the world today and in the church today and in your life and mine. So should we devote time to it? Yes, I think we should. Let's hit one more in Malachi then, chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now Christ addressed this himself when he said, Hey, here's a summary of the commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. Esteem others higher than yourself. Put them, in your opinion, higher than you, as Paul put it in Ephesians. This is a problem. He said, how you treat each other is how I will treat you. And there we have a gauge of how God is going to treat us. How merciful, how forgiving, how loving we are to our brothers and sisters here in the church and our family is how he will judge us. If we judge each other harshly, we put each other down, then that's the way he's going to treat us. He makes the equation very simple. I'm going to treat you like you treat others. You know, we can't have our private relationship where we think everything is just hunky-dory between us and God. Because we can delude ourselves into thinking that when our relationship with our brothers and sisters on this earth is not what it ought to be. And he says, you can't go by your feelings that you have or your emotions toward God. The practical issue is this. I judge your relationship with me based on what your relationship with each other is. That's scary. Isn't it? How we treat one another is exactly how we will be treated by God. But that, unquestionably, is the way he says it will be done. Go to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you don't believe it, and read it. Now, let's go to Matthew. Because everything up to this point in the Bible is a prelude to what Christ introduces. He represented himself, God did, to David, his father. And then the rest of the references to father and a relationship of a father was to the end time once God officially did then establish that. He wrote about it before it happened, if you will. And now that it has happened, when Christ came, his very first teachings were to direct us not to Almighty God or the Lord of hosts, it was to address him as a father. A distinct change in the relationship between God and man, and only then a called out few 
who were put in the position of being able to call him father. Now let's see how that develops here and under what conditions it is allowed. Matthew 5 begins that famous teaching where Christ went away from the multitudes, as it says in chapter 5, verse 1. And when he was set, his disciples came to him. That is not how it is shown in any movie or in Protestant teaching. It was that the multitudes gathered, and that's what he wanted, and that's and he taught them. No, he saw the multitude, and he went away. And when his disciples caught up with him, he sat down to teach them. Now, if the multitudes gathered, that was okay, but it was not his intent and purpose for the multitudes to hear Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, I point that out for this reason. Those to whom he has offered fatherhood are very few. It was to his disciples that he directed these words. The multitudes may have overheard it. But do you notice through his teachings and through his ministry how he often spoke to the multitudes in parables so that they would not, could not understand? He allowed them to be deceived. And in fact, if you want to push it a little bit, he deceived them. By allowing them to be deceived and putting in such, the words in such a way that they would be, he was deliberately not showing them what he was showing the disciples. Because he knew that they would not obey and that they would have to be destroyed if they knew the truth and didn't follow it. So he put things that way. How is it that they get this idea that he taught in parables to make the the meaning simple and plain and understandable. He didn't. He said so. He said, I wrote and I spoke in parables so they wouldn't get it. Therefore, parables are not that easy to be understood. And you need the Spirit of God to grasp what he's really trying to say. So, even today, he is not offering fatherhood to the vast majority of the earth, but only to those whom he is calling out to give his truth. I don't say that to pat us on the back, because we are the weak and the base. And he has called those who aren't much to confound the wise when he works through such as us in spite of ourselves to do his mighty and great work. So it is not because we are special that we are here hearing these words today. It's because we were unspecial. Okay? There's nothing special about you and me. It is not to remain that way. We are here to become special. We are here to change and be special to God end of the world that sees us as a light upon a hill not to be hid, as we heard in the sermonette. That's what God wants us to become. 
We were in darkness, now we're in the light. And he begins to shed light upon these disciples, and he shows them the kind of attitude they ought to have, what is called the Beatitudes. I'm not going through all this because it would take all of today to do it. But the meek, gentle, humble, caring attitudes that he first introduces in this teaching is where we need to be. Because, as he later said, we're to become as little children. There is a point in little children's lives when they look upon their father almost as God. My daddy can do no wrong. My daddy can whip your daddy. My daddy's smarter than your daddy. Oh, how deceived our little children are. But they do go through that phase. And we are to have that same attitude toward God who actually does deserve it and who is bigger and smarter and stronger than your daddy. And he's going to show that. But he says that's the attitude we're to have. For of these is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 18, first part. And that's what he's explaining here to his disciples in the very first official formal teaching that they had. It's all about attitude, boys and girls. You've got to have these attitudes. Then I'm going to offer you something. Here's, here's the way to approach these things. Now let's go on down to verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And yet all of Protestantism essentially says you don't need works. Well, that's part of his very first teaching, is that men need to see your works of faith, your works of obedience. Yes, salvation is by grace, because none of us deserve it. But he said, I'll show you my faith by my works. So works are very important. And he instructs us here toward good works. And glorify your Father which is in heaven. By the way we do things, by the way we react to people, by the works of service and giving and loving that we exhibit to others, that glorifies God. So if we are to become special, it means we have to change all our attitudes to conform to the first few verses of Matthew 5 and then begin to do the things of God and, as a result, it will glorify Him. Not us, but Him. So, right off the bat here, he introduces fatherhood to us. Have these attitudes, start doing good works, and you'll have a father-son relationship with he who was the Almighty, who was the Lord of hosts, who was the mighty God, and still is, but he's offering us another dimension to go with those other titles, and that is fatherhood. Now, what closer relationship can you have than that? A mother's job is to point the children to their father, to teach them to honor and respect and obey the father. That is the church's job, because he refers to the church as the mother, 
People do not go through the mother to the father. They have direct access to the father at all times. And a mother should never get between the child and the father. She should be, in an organizational line, in one sense, to the side. You do not have to go through mom to speak to dad. You can go at any time. Mom is over here to point you to the father. So that is the church's function, not to get between you and God, or you have to go through the church to get to God. But the church is there, the government of the church is there to point you to God, to help you in your relationship with your father. Because it's all about fatherhood. Now, this must be truly important information. It's the first thing he introduces to these fishermen and tax collectors and people that weren't much. Weak in base, not important. He could have called a bunch of Pharisees and Sadducees to be his disciples, but he didn't. He just called fishermen and tax collectors and, you know, janitors and food servers or whatever. Not the mighty, not the noble, not the important, just us. They don't amount to much, or anything, really. So that's what he introduces. Let's go to verse 45. Well, it's, it's actually verse 44. Well, 43. <laughs> You have heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, we might have animosities and issues that are raised among us as people, we get crossways with one another at times for whatever reasons. And things don't go well. And we, in that sense, become enemies to one another because we are hurting the family, the group, by the things we say and the things we do and getting crossways with each other. Then it's up to us to fix that. Not to hold grudges, not to bear animosity, not to continue in a hateful way, but to repent before God, to change our attitudes, and to love those who are in a position, not truly our enemies, but in a position even of enemy, of a foe, an antagonist, someone who is against us in emotion or feeling perhaps at the moment. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. Bless them that curse you. Oh, what do we expect with humanity as a whole? If they do something against us or hurtful to us, or we do to them, we expect revenge, retaliation, bad attitude, being snubbed, being ignored, being talked about, being stabbed in the back, all kinds of carnal human fruits of the, or not fruits, but works of the flesh. That's what we've come to anticipate and expect. And indeed, through school and as we grew up and in business and in life, we generally resist 
and make enemies of those who would do hurtful things or say hurtful things about us. That is the normal, carnal, human way. Now, he's telling us here to do it different or differently. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Our reaction carnally is, who said that? Who did that? Why'd they do that? We get mad. We get angry. We don't want our privacy interrupted. We don't want our life looked at. We don't want anything we do to be analyzed or anything negative said about us at all. We get upset. We shouldn't. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And maybe if we have the right attitude, they'll change their attitude toward us. You catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. A word spoken softly is like pictures of gold and apples of silver. That's the way we should react. Why? That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Now, we can become angry with God. We can have animosity toward His way, toward His rules. We might not think so, but by our very stiff-necked, selfish approach to life, we do despise Him and His rules by breaking them. Now, we might think, I love God, but I'm doing my thing over here. No, we can't do it that way, because that shows the true relationship. Now, he is willing to forgive, to forget. But he says, I'm not going to forgive you, and I'm not going to forget your sins unless you forgive and forget others' sins. You will receive the same amount of mercy that you give others. That's in this same teaching. I won't go to all of these things. But have this attitude toward anyone who has something against you. To love them. Love your enemies, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. That's the way He is, and that's the way He wants us to be. For He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. People can be the worst of sinners and get rain out of the same storm that a righteous person does. That's the way God is. For if you love them which love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the publicans the same? The worst sinners on earth. Like those who like them. That's no big deal. But what if somebody is against you and you decide to like them anyway? Now there's a tough assignment. I kid you not. I don't care who you are. That's a tough assignment. Just the way it is. We do not have the mind of God sufficiently, and that's why we can't react in the way that we're supposed to. And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be you therefore mature, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is mature. He says spiritually mature is different than this little human childishness of hurt feelings, 
bad attitudes, obstinacy, selfishness, vanity, and pride. And if you hurt me and I don't like what you're doing to me, I'm going to be upset. We need to be emotionally, spiritually mature, as our Father in Heaven is, and control our emotions to the point we don't let our ire, our anger, our bad attitudes overwhelm us and lash out at others. That we have to do. And be as our Father in Heaven is. So when he introduces himself to us as a New Testament church, first of all to these disciples, he is giving us direction in fatherhood and sonship, that we be as our Father in heaven. I want to be just like you, Dad, should be our approach, so that we bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. That is control. Self-control. We like to control others, but we don't like to go through what it takes to control ourselves. It's easier to try to control others than it is ourselves. And we can be meaner to others than we can be to ourselves. It seems. At least that's what comes down among people. So he says, don't be that way. Okay, chapter 6. Take heed that you do not your alms, your good deeds, your works, before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. The minute we begin to brag about our good works and all the things that we do for people or how hard we work and what, how much we serve and however we want to let people know how well we're doing, he says, you, you lose your reward. Now, we're to be laying up treasures in heaven, it says in this same teaching. But we bankrupt ourselves the minute we begin to brag about all the good things we do. Don't do it to be seen of men, you know, and tap on their skull and say, Hey, have you noticed me? How many good things and wonderful things I do? That was the Pharisees. Blow the trumpet. Let everybody see all the good things we do. He tells us, don't even let your right hand and your left hand know, much less somebody else. Just be so busy giving and serving and doing for others that you can't and don't keep track of it. Now, that's another tough assignment because we like to break our arm patting ourselves on the back. And making sure that people understand how righteous we are. That is what is known as self-righteousness. And God does not count it for righteousness. In fact, he says, I remove the reward. No reward. When you do good things, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do, that they may have the glory of men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. Whatever pleasure they get out of having people look up to them because of the wonderful things they have done is all the reward they're going to get. That's it. No reward from their Father in heaven. So we need to be so busy helping each other, encouraging each other, strengthening each other, teasing each other in good fun and toward sharpening 
our spiritual lives in good faith and in good humor, not in negativity. When you do alms, let not your left hand know what your right hand does, that your good deeds or your works may be in secret, and your Father which sees in secret himself shall reward you openly. I've seen people do these things at times where they know somebody's having trouble, so they'll leave a basket of food on their door. They won't maybe ring the doorbell. They'll just leave it and go. Or if it's something that spoils, they'll leave it and get around the corner before they can be seen. I've seen people do things anonymously like that. Uh, and that is a good thing. That is complying with this. But if we do something good for somebody, then we want to sit and bask in our glory and tell them and tell others what a good thing this was and we want to be padded for it. It doesn't do any good. That's not what it's about. We're not here to lift our pride and our vanity, but to be meek and humble as little children who are just so happy they can do something for dad or mom. You know, there is that age where they are so happy that they can please a parent. And that goes away when we start getting a little older and our own self-will and selfishness begins to take over. And even a child is known by the things that he does because he needs to be taught these things, even as a little child, so he won't depart from them as he gets older. It isn't just a matter of departing or staying in the church. It's a matter of him learning what kind of citizen to be. And whether God calls him or not is up to God, but he should know how to comport himself among other humans. How to be a decent human being who's willing to give and serve and share and help, no matter his status in that sense with God, but to be an upright, upstanding human being. And that's as far as you can take it. God wants to call them spiritually at this time. That's up to him. Or later. And the second resurrection, or the millennium if they live, or whatever. He knows when to call them. So he is instructing us here in how we should approach our Father. Um, where did I want to go next? Well, let's go on down here. Uh, Verse 5, when you pray, you shall not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and the corners of the street. They have their reward. We've already really done that. But you, verse 6, when you pray, enter into your closet, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father, which is in secret. And your Father, which sees in secret, shall reward you openly. Now, it's all right for us to pray, and it's okay, I suppose, for others to know that we pray, but we don't want to brag about it. We don't, t- you know, I, I, I feel uncomfortable. Let's say I really was praying and somebody calls or something and, and I answer the phone. And they say, well, can I talk? And I say, well, I was praying, but go ahead. You know, I interrupted my prayer to talk to you. You know, we have our little ways of letting people know the righteous things that we're doing. No, he says, do it in secret. What does secret mean? Secret means don't tell anybody. 
whether it's right-handed or left-handed or however you want to go about, letting people know what you do. You know, people are going to know sooner or later whether you're properly or are praying and properly praying. It's going to show in your reactions. It's going to show in the way that you have relationships with people. Because carnal human beings act selfishly. They act in anger. They act in frustration. They act in impatience. And if you're praying diligently on getting rid of the works of the flesh and coming to have the fruit of the Spirit, it will show in due time. You shall know them by their fruits, not by the things they say. Remember the Pharisees and how they kept telling everybody how righteous they were and blowing the trumpet when they'd give uh, offerings or whatever? And yet, they were lying, stealing, cheating, dishonoring their parents and all kinds of things Christ accused them of. And yet, to all intents and purposes, their outer show was of righteousness. And they weren't righteous at all. Their prayers that they gave in the streets meant nothing. They were done in vanity and ego. And their lives were permeated with vanity and ego. So if you are truly prostrating yourself before God, prostrating, that sounds like an organ, prostrating, I meant, bowing before your God in heaven, and truly praying in the way you should, it will begin to show in your demeanor, in your life, in your works, and people will see that and glorify your Father in heaven. So we need to keep those things secret just between our Father and us. That's a pretty special relationship, isn't it? My Father and me. That's where the prayer needs to be. That's where the work of change has to come, is getting your attitudes and approaches right with Him, and then it will show with others that you have the mind of God and you're reacting the way God does. Loving your enemies, forgiving, forgetting, pushing it aside, and loving them. That's the way God thinks. There's where we have to be. Then he talks about verse 8, Your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him, and yet He expects you to ask anyway. After this manner, therefore pray you, Our Father, which is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So this comes down to how we address our Father in heaven. And this really settles a lot of issues in terms of what do we call God? The Jews will just put G and then a dash and a D, and then we have all kinds of spellings of Yeshua and Yehovah and Yah and so on, and got to get it technically just like the ancient Hebrew was. God doesn't allow translations, of course. <laughs> but we've got to get it just the way some Hebrew said it thousands of years ago. But it's hard to mess up, Father, isn't it? We don't have to go to the Almighty One and say it in just the right way. We have a way out from that so that we don't have to worry about 
Oh my, I wonder if I said his name just right. He might be angry with me. He may have blocked me out because I didn't say Yehovah just right. Or Yehovah or Yehovah or whatever we come up with. Because people come up with different things. Just say Father. He introduces a whole new dimension here. He's mentioned the Father already in this Sermon on the Mountain to those disciples more than He ever did to anyone in the Old Testament ever. And even nearly every one of those in the Old Testament was directed to us upon whom the ends of the world have come. As a prophecy of the time when we could approach Him as Father. And now we're there. So he began the early New Testament church by introducing this concept to us. By deepening the relationship. No more just God who makes the rules, but Daddy, Father. Abba, Father. My Daddy, my Father. And that's the way we are to, and that's the way we are to address Him. For the most part. That's the way we open our prayers. Now, we, he has all kinds of titles, all kinds of offices. And certainly, if we glorify his name at the beginning of a prayer, our Father, hallowed be your name. So, he has many names. And we may understand some of those and some of his offices. Healer, Redeemer, you know, Almighty, on and on it can go. And we can use that section of our prayer, but the initial thing is my Father, our Father. And I find it interesting that he doesn't say, say, my Father, which is in heaven. He wants us to be a flock. He wants us to be interconnected and our lives irrevocably, irretrievably joined together. So it is our Father lest we become selfish. He's not just your father. He's not just my father. He's ours. And we are his children collectively. And we need to approach it that way. We cannot have my father relationship and set aside the relationship of the brothers and sisters in the family. Can't do it. They say you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your relatives. Sometimes maybe we wish we could, but we can't. God chooses our relatives, doesn't he? He calls whom he will call. And he says, all right, I'm going to throw you together in a congregation and your family, and these are your brothers and your sisters. He made it abundantly clear when he had a whole group of people around and they came and said, your mother and your brothers and sisters want to talk to you. And he said, no, these are my brothers and sisters. Now that literally was his own mother, birth mother. Those were literally his at least half brothers. And he said, no, those aren't mine. These are. So he's telling us in that story, your physical relatives, your blood relatives don't matter. Spiritual relatives do. 
we should be closer to one another here, though we're not strictly blood-related, at least not closely, than we are to our brothers and sisters in the family that are not converted. This is a closer relationship. It is a spiritual relationship. It is an eternal relationship that we are developing as members of the Bride of Christ. And you don't get any closer than that. That's why he says, Be willing to leave father, mother, brothers, sisters, children, lands, and homes. Come and follow me and serve with my disciples. The disciples that he's talking to right here left their brothers and sisters and families and came and followed him. And when one one said, let me go bury my physical father, he said, no, come and follow me. Somebody else can bury him. You don't need to. I've seen people leave the Feast of Tabernacles where we come to serve God and worship Him to go bury a family member. And they're so torn up. I've got to go bury him, or my brothers and my sisters will think I'm cold and unloving. So? So what? We are called to worship God. And he said, let the dead bury the dead. You don't have to go right now. They got ice these days. They got embalming. So the other siblings want to go ahead and get them buried. Okay, let them go ahead. We would throw away a chance to keep God's commanded feast to go bury a spiritually dead person who is also, by the way, physically dead. It doesn't make any sense. They can wait or they can go ahead. Why did Christ make those statements? Just to hear his head rattle? He did make them, didn't he? Well, it goes against our feelings and our emotions. Well, are our feelings and emotions properly educated is the question. What do we value the most? Our Father in heaven and our brothers and sisters in Christ as a bride of Christ? Or do we value those physical fathers and mothers and children or our siblings? Which is more important? That's the whole point. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Things are done according to His will there. And we have to be learning to do them according to His will here. And it takes an awful lot of prayer and devotion and study of His Word that we do His will. And that's what we're praying really here. That your will be done in me as it is in my brothers and sisters here, just like it is with the angels in heaven or the 24 elders or whatever is in heaven. Give us this daily, our day... Oh boy, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we, for, as we forgive our debtors. Don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.
And then he says, If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you don't, he won't forgive yours. Why is it we think we can pray and our sins are forgiven and we won't forgive each other and put their sin aside and forget about it and not agitate over it? If we're not willing to do that, he is not going to put our sin aside and he is going to agitate over it. And we do not want God agitating over our sins, do we? I don't. So then why are we so loath to forgive one another's inadequacies and sins and faults and hold it against them and bring it up three months, six months, two years, five years down the line? If we do that, God says, I'm going to bring yours up. Ouch. When? When he starts judging us, and he is now. You and I are being judged as to whether we'll be in the kingdom of God right now. This is a day of salvation for us. And how we are acting day by day with each other is exactly how he will judge us. That is scary, but it is an absolute fact. There's no translation problem here whatsoever. It's just straightforward. Couldn't misinterpret it if you tried. Real simple. This just, this just goes on and on and on. Uh, verse 18. That you appear not to men to fast, but unto your Father which is in secret. Your Father which is in secret shall reward you openly. We like to let people know once in a while when we're fasting. Just blow your breath on them, I guess. That's enough. <laughs> but we have our little ways of letting people know sometimes. No, fasting is between us and God. To fix the relationship between us and God has nothing to do with our brother, except that if we get our attitude straight in fasting to God, we'll treat our brother better. But bragging about it doesn't help. Verse 26. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are, they not much, are you not much better than they? Uh, I mean, we could expound this whole thing, but what I'm trying to point out here is how many times he mentions his fatherhood to us in this one introduction. Because this was the introduction of the concept of fatherhood to mankind, essentially, other than David. They just didn't offer that relationship prior to the New Testament church. And that's the way that he introduces the New Testament church. And true New Testament Christianity has to do with father-son relationships. It's hard to get anything more important than this, isn't it? When you, when you see how he approached this first teaching to those disciples... Verse 32, for all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. So he just keeps saying it over and over and over about Father. Chapter 7, verse 11, if you then, being evil or carnal, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Just as the Father is moved to feed his children and make sure that they go to bed with their tummies full, God thinks of us in that way and more, deeper 
than even we as human fathers can possibly do. So he's explaining the relationship to us. Verse 21, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. And he constantly referred to his relationship with the Father. He did not use the terms, if you go through all his teachings, the Almighty or the Lord of hosts or Jehovah. He didn't use those terms. He constantly and consistently referred to his Father in heaven. That was a relationship he had. He was the first begotten and the firstborn Son of God. So he wanted us to understand, to comprehend, to recognize and to live that same relationship that he did with his Father in heaven. Isn't this a, an incredible concept? I mean, we've taken it for granted, haven't we? We've just taken our Father in heaven, in that sense, for granted. And, and it struck me as I kind of went through this subject, how special it is that he has given this opportunity to the church. To true Christians, if you will. Or those working at be, being true Christians. Chapter 10, verse 18. You shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no anxious thought how or what you shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaks in you. The relationship should be so close. And our thinking should be so close to that of our Father in heaven that automatically, when the time comes, the right words will come to us because we've been studying His words. They are paramount in our mind. We know them. We know His words. And He can bring them to us in a moment of need. The Spirit of God can inspire the right Scripture, the right Word, to come to mind. We've experienced that, all of us, haven't we? When you were at a loss and suddenly something popped in your mind that was the right thing to say. Now, more often than not, probably the wrong thing pops in our mind to say, but that didn't come from God. And our lack of closeness to God is what causes us to say the wrong thing. But if we have this Word, paramount, foremost in our mind, then it will be there and God can inspire that thought to come out. Verse 21, The brother shall deliver up the brother to death and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. You shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. Now that's where the relationships with our physical families are going to go. Brother against brother, sister against sister, father, mother, back and forth. If we obey God and put our heavenly father first and our heavenly brothers and sisters first, the others are going to hate us. So which do we put first? I think that puts more into context what I was saying earlier. It might be shocking to say, well, don't go bury your father. Uh, if God has other things that need to be done at the moment. 
It is a matter of perspective of what is important and understanding that our physical families are going to become our enemies. There's no getting around that. If we obey God, they will become enemies. If we put God first, they will become enemies. It's inevitable. Cannot be stopped. It will happen. And with most of us, when we first were called into the church and began keeping the Sabbath and going to the feast and giving up Christmas and Easter and all those things, there was a great deal of animosity. And they almost became enemies. And some of them did become enemies. And if you think it was bad when you were first called, what's it going to be like when there is a vast divergence between what God's people are doing and what the world is doing, and they come, the whole world, to hate the few who will serve God. Then the animosity is going to increase many-fold. So where do you need to be, put your time, be putting your time, your loyalties, and your energies? With your physical children out in the world who aren't converted? With your physical brothers and sisters? We worry, some of us, way too much about our physical children whom God has not called. We do not have faith and trust God to take care of them. And we really drive them away more than we bring them in by trying to remind them of, well, you know what's right. You know what to do. You should be here. Blah, 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 on and on. God forbid that we push them away by trying to draw them in when he is not calling. I've said many times, he loves them more than we do. So when are we going to turn loose and let him handle them? Instead of worrying ourselves to death over them. Why not just trust God? He knows what they need. He knows when he wants to call them. He knows how to work with them. He knows exactly what he's doing. And we don't have a clue what we're doing. And we tend to drive them away more than, they bring, than we bring them in. Because we think we love them so much. And we don't love them anymore or any, nearly as much as our Father in Heaven loves them. They're His children too. And they're His children more than they're your children. Okay? Well, we're almost time. Let me finish this chapter. Verse 33. Whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. We can deny God not by saying, well, I don't think there's a God, or I deny God. We deny God by not paying attention to His way of life and doing things our way. That's how we deny Him, indeed. For I am come to set a man at variance against his Father. What? I came not to send peace, but a sword, verse 34. I came. I had in purpose, I had in mind, I came to set at variance a man against his father, the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. And if you love your physical relatives 
and put them ahead of me. This is pretty powerful language, isn't it? He that takes not his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. So which is more important, our Father in heaven and our brothers and sisters in Christ or our physical families? So why do we agitate over our physical families? Let God deal with them. We can't. We can't convince them in any case. What good does it do to try? He says, put me first, do what I say, leave them, leave lands, leave homes, forget about them. Follow me. Now, how are you going to serve God and serve the brothers and sisters when you're spending all your time worrying about your physical kids that God hasn't called? Spending your time and energy trying to talk them into something or worrying about them and fretting over them doesn't do any good. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. John six forty four. That's simple. We have to put our Father in heaven first in our affections, in our feelings, our time, our energy, and in loving our brothers as ourselves. So if you're sidetracked and spending more time with your physical family not in the church, you need to readjust your sights and your focus. Focus on helping your brothers and sisters who are called get into the kingdom of God because their time is now. Their judgment is now. Your physical children and your physical fathers and mothers or whoever, their time is later if they're not called now. And you'll be there as the bride of Christ to help them at that time. But it's critical now that we be helping each other into the kingdom of God rather than worrying about our physical kids and parents and relatives whom God might not be calling now. He is far more concerned about us and our neighbors and brothers and sisters here than he is about your physical children. He will call them in due course. You can't do it. So frustrating yourself and worrying yourself sick over it isn't going to do you a bit of good, and it will not do them any good. And it will hurt your relationship. So let's get a clue as to where our affections, our thoughts, our time, and our energy ought to go. To our Father in heaven and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Focus there. Spend your time and your energy there, not elsewhere. That's that whole lesson that Christ gave in saying, my brothers and my, my mother, my brothers, forget about them for the moment. These are my brothers and sisters. He meant that. He didn't say that lightly. He meant it. And we need to walk as he walked. Well, that's a good place to close it, I think, for today.